Good afternoon and welcome to Wem Adelaide Planet Talks. It's great to be here with you on a Monday afternoon. Thank you for joining us. And I'd also like to welcome anyone who's listening on Radio National at the moment. This is being recorded and will be replayed on Big Ideas. I'd like to welcome to the stage our panellists for today's very important topic. Firstly, I'd like to welcome Vivian Sin, Masters by Research in Marine Ecology at the University of New South Wales, specialising in contamination and microplastic distribution. Vivian, it must be depressing having that job at times. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> um, also in the middle, we have Vaughan Levitsky, um, Chief Executive of Green Industries SA, formerly known as Zero Waste, so you may have heard of it under that guise. And uh, to my right, Associate Professor Anne Sharp, Senior Research Scientist in Sustainability at the Ehrenberg Bass Institute for Marketing Science at the Uni SA Business School. Please welcome our panellists. <laughs> My name is Deb Tribe. I'm from ABC Radio Adelaide. It's a pleasure to be hosting this panel. An estimated five trillion plastic items, mostly less than five millimetres in size, are currently circulating the surface of the world's oceans. And scientists cite microplastics, that is particles less than five millimetres, entering our food chain as a potential toxic ticking time bomb. So let that one sink in for a moment. Our three experts today are going to discuss waste, microplastic contamination research and consumer behaviour. And we're going to debate the scale of the world's addiction to plastic and the possible solutions. The question we ask today is, is plastic pollution as great a threat to humanity as climate change. So we'll get our panellists' answer at the end of the session. But I'd like to start, if I could, with you, Vaughan, please. Can you give us a brief history of plastic? Plastic um, goes back an awful long way, actually. In the 1800s, we started using rubber, and, and that's actually a, a polymer. Although it's derived from rubber trees, pretty soon we were looking at alternatives to that. And then we, we moved into the area of nylon, PET. So even before that, you know, we had Bakelite in, in telephones and things like that. Most people remember those and switching boxes and all that sort of stuff. Amazing material because it doesn't conduct electricity. It's hard. It's easy to mould. And it filled, filled a lot of things that we, you know, we didn't have before, even wood. Um, but nylon was really interesting, you know, in the 40s, post, during the war and post-war. Nylon was so strong for women's stockings, they actually had to take it back to the laboratory and change the, the molecular structure so that it, it ran. Otherwise, you'd still be wearing them for years. <laughs> the, but now, you know, over the last 50 years, the amount of plastic has grown 20-fold. There are a multitude of different polymers in our environment and we use them in a variety, so many different ways today, it's staggering. Vivian, did you want to add into that? Yeah, um, in a paper I read in 2012, they estimated that the plastic that we're currently producing and consuming, it would increase by a further 25-fold on top of what we're currently using. So if you think about that figure in itself, it's astronomical and how long plastic lasts in the environment. Why have we replaced things that we traditionally used for many, many, many thousands of years, wood, um, of course, in recent history, glass, uh, paper, leather and the like, with plastic. Why is it 
being used to replace all of those materials? It's primarily because it's cheap. It's a byproduct from the petroleum industry. And so it's, it's very easy to make polymers once you've got the, the oil out of the ground. Polyethylene is a byproduct of, of um, oil refinery. So, you know, it's easily made available. You can turn it into all these different products and you can change the molecular structure of it. So whilst it's an organic type compound, you can change out the carbons and hydrogens to make all these interesting lattices that normally don't occur in the, normally in the environment. Yeah, I was just going to add, it's also, um, you know, unintended response to consumer demand. We've had many improvements in how we live, better hygiene standards, uh, fruit and vegetables available in times of years they traditionally wouldn't be. Um, and so, you know, people have wanted to respond to consumer demand, and this is an unintended consequence that we have a lot more packaging, a lot more transportation of items. So... I, we, you know, that's what sustainable marketing is about, not, not running out of resources and not killing your customers or doing unintentional harm. Well, there's a lot of unintentional harm yeah, that's sure arisen is. from our addiction to plastic. Let's talk about that. How long do plastics last and do they ever really break down? I'm, I'm looking at you two. Vaughan, do you want to take that first? Look, it <clears throat> depends on the polymer, but under UV light, some will break down, others don't. So they have different... They add things to the plastic to prevent it from breaking down under UV, for example. They add things to the plastic so that it, it's, you know, it, it doesn't break down in salt water, it doesn't break down in water. So some plastics can last pretty much, you know, a geological eon. You know, there's, there's nothing really that can break them down. Yeah, um, to add to that, um, scientists have suggested that every bit of plastic that has been created um, still exists to this day. There's been no destruction of that plastic. So at the rate we're pumping it in, it's... Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. Does it matter what sort of plastic it is? Um, sorry, do you want to... No, um, once it's in, in the environment uh, and it interacts with contaminants and toxins, um, the type of plastic itself doesn't really matter. Um, they all interact in a very similar manner to a contaminant and therefore a biological organism. So even if it breaks down into nanoparticles, it's still a contaminating thing throughout our food chain in our earth. And um, well, what does it mean for the environment? Let's talk about that. Perhaps the environment broadly and then we'll look at the marine environment. In, in the environment broadly, you know, plastics end up in our soil. They, they contaminate farmland. You know, all of the, the plastic that's used to wrap um, silage for cow, cattle feed, most of that ends up back in the soil. When people are farming strawberries, they, they put plastic underlay. You know, so in the farming community, it's a big issue. They don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to, to, to handle the material you know, once the crop is finished. In the wine industry, it's used for the pipes that run along and, and do all the drip irrigation, polypro, polypro, polyethylene. There's so much of it. Um, and in the environment, when it, as it does break into smaller and smaller pieces, it actually retains its chemical structure. So it gets smaller, but it, then it's ingestible. So it's ingestible by birds and all of the other vertebrates that you might come across that think it's something that's edible. Um, and then it gets into the marine environment. 
Um, yeah, so once it enters the marine environment, there's a number of things that can happen. It can continue to stay on the surface of the ocean and accumulate in those giant gyres and essentially become a plastic slurry. Um, in other cases, if given enough time, it will form a bacterial film on it and that increases its weight and allows it to sink to the sediments um, in the benthos. And that's a particular concern for ecologists as um, sediment has been shown to be particularly good at binding to contaminants. And if they're binding to contaminants there and you're adding plastics, which are also good at binding to contaminants, um, you've got a toxic kind of cocktail happening and everything is kind of coming from multiple angles and um, your contaminant problem is exacerbated, essentially. Vivian, what sort of factors play into how plastic is distributed in our marine ecology? Um, so from the research that we carried out, we tried to find if there was a long-term trend to microplastic distribution and whether or not we could try to predict whether or not there was a way to stop it from entering the environment um, and predicting where it would end up. Unfortunately, we found it was very dependent on rainfall. So if there's a big rainfall event, it's going to push a large volume of microplastics out and they're going to go further out. Um, if there's limited rainfall, not um, there might not be as much microplastics and um, they kind of stay in the little bay area. Um, and we also found if there's council cleanups, um, we'd have a spike in plastics in waterways as well. Mm. Is it true to say for our animal life that plastics can't be digested or assimilated? Well, the interesting thing is some of them end up being endocrine disruptors. So they, they block endocrine um, things on your cells that allow hormones and things to interact. And so they end up causing all sorts of difficulties in, in very, particularly reptiles um, when they've been exposed to these sorts of things, you know, in estuarine environments. Crocodiles, for example, whether it's plastics or not, we don't know, but the endocrine disruptors are causing huge issues for, for crocodile populations. I'll just add to this, you know, one of the big challenges uh, in terms of addressing this issue is that lots of this is invisible to us as everyday people. So, I, you know, the social scientists kind of say people don't think about these issues in their everyday behaviour, which makes it a much, much bigger challenge to then change behaviour and make people aware of the long-term impact, because lots of this is happening out to sea or inside animals that we don't, I don't interact with crocodiles in, on a daily basis. Mm. <laughs> well, Anne, I'd like to pick up an issue with you as well because all of this plastic is produced because there is demand for it and that demand is coming from us as consumers. So as um, someone that specialises in marketing, can you tell us about our behaviour as consumers? What actually drives it? Yeah, that's, that's really good. First of all, I'd like to start by saying everybody here today is not normal. And I mean that actually as a compliment because you're here, you're interested and you're engaged with this issue. But the vast majority of consumers are not here today. And, you know, they're just trying to get about their life. They're just trying to get ready for going back to school tomorrow. They're trying to take their groceries home. They're trying to make a quick dinner, catch up on sport, all those kind of normal everyday things. So this is really low, low involvement and low awareness in their life. And most of the shopping that we do, we do as um, very low involvement and habitual. We are very much creatures of habit. 
So if you go into a supermarket, there are between 30 and 50,000 products to choose from. And yet you typically walk out with about five. And you do that in about 10 minutes. So what that means is there's lots of stuff you're not noticing and you're not, you know, you're just screening out. So, you know, sometimes people say, oh, marketers, you are very evil. I go, well, I wish I was that powerful because most effort marketers make is simply ignored. That's the biggest challenge we face in everything. And so getting some cut through with people and getting them to think about plastics and the impact of their immediate consumption choices, that, that's the big challenge that we have. Well, let's stay on the issue of demand and talk about why it is that we are drowning under a sea of plastic in the world at the moment. Plastic is recyclable. Why aren't we recycling it? What Perhaps you could answer that one, please, Vaughan. Well, part of the problem is that we have a, what we call a glut of recyclable plastics in, in the market, and there aren't enough uses for the recycled material to displace the virgin. Virgin material is cheap, it's readily available, it's a byproduct of the petroleum industry, and so there is a, it's really hard to displace that with recycled plastics. All around you here today, this, this, this kind of covering here, that's PVC laminated, PVC polyvinyl chloride plastic. Um, it's, it's in the speaker boxes we have at the front. All of your chairs are high density or mixed with polypropylene. It is absolutely everywhere. The amount of material that we have to deal with from a recycling point of view is staggering. For South Australia alone, we recycle around 28,000 tonnes of plastic annually. That's what we recycle. We estimate that we only recycle about between 15 and 20% of the total amount of plastic that, that should be recycled. In other words, the rest is going to landfill or out into the environment. So we have a market problem. We don't have any market pull for this material. And now with the China saying it wants no more uh, contaminated plastic being imported to China. That's having a global impact. China imported around 51% of the world's mixed plastics to turn back into the products that, you, that you, you buy for your children that you're sitting on. That is going to stop because they have enough plastic within their own community to meet the demand for, for China. So they're still interested in buying high-quality plastics, so the milk bottle plastics, all those sorts of things will have a market, but a lot of the other stuff, no way, not interested. One thing that alarmed me when we were having a chat earlier this afternoon about what we're going to talk about on stage was the fact that we wear so much plastic, and I was not aware of that. Can somebody, perhaps Vivian, discuss the clothing industry? Yeah, so a lot of the woolen jumpers that we wear during winter and those jumpers you can get from Kathmandu or um, those kind of puffy, sporty jackets, all that um, material is essentially microplastic fibres now. They don't really use wool because of the price. So on an average load of laundry that you do whenever you do your laundry, you're looking at anywhere of upwards of 6,000 microplastics per load. So if you think about how many loads you're running a week and if you're in a family of four or larger, you're going to be running multiple loads. So that's just all going to the marine environment. And currently there is no filter on a washing machine to stop microplastics from entering the environment. Um, the biggest concern for that is it's clogged 
going to clog way too fast. Um, so researchers are looking for a way to introduce filters to keep up with the loads of washing and not get clogged as fast. Once we know that there are microplastics everywhere, you've explained that they're throughout our um, terrestrial earth, they're in the marine environments. Can microplastics be removed from the environment? Is there a way that we can do that? Yeah, well, already there's a move with um, microplastics in cosmetic products. So most facial scrubs, toothpastes, um, all of those types of cream cleansers, you name it, they've got little beads of plastic in them to make them feel silky or to tear away the, the, ex, the, the, the skin on your face. All of those can actually be replaced with um, naturally occurring products, but it's going to cost more money. So there's a margin question here, you know, in terms of sales of products into the market and how, they, how these companies are willing to replace those. Yes. Nationally, we have a, an agreement that they're going to be phased out by June of next year. So, sorry, June of this year. So hopefully um, that will be alleviated for Australians, but that's only here. And it is a big issue. Um, we want to do the right thing. Probably everybody that is here wants to do the right thing when it comes to plastic. But we don't also have the time to read the full label of everything that we buy to try and work out what's actually in it. Yeah, a, a lot of my work is um, with experts in the area. And one of the big challenges that happens is experts talk to us as experts and assume we know stuff and think about stuff in a way that we actually just don't. So um, much effort in this space is wasted because it's pitched at a level up here for a level of knowledge down here. As I said, all of you are actually quite literate in this space compared to the average person. But, you know, people know very little about this stuff. And it's, it's not sexy to say, just have a simple message and repeat it lots. But that's actually what we have to do to start to build people's awareness and ability to manage this issue. And you need to measure it as well. So we're starting to see things like um, plastic emissions certifications being developed so that we can get information um, about our consumption choices. But even so, when we're shopping, we don't pick up products. We don't read back labels. And even though ads might ask us to, we don't go home and go to the websites to get full information on the whole supply chain. So it's going to take effort from us as consumers and effort from manufacturers and retailers and changes in infrastructure. It's going to be all of us working together. Well, I certainly had no idea I was buying toothpastes with nanoplastics in it until we sat down this afternoon and talked about it. So is there something from a marketing perspective like a P for plastic that should be on or an NP for nanoparticle? Everything that we buy so that we are aware that what we are buying has plastic in it. Yeah, well, we've done quite a bit of work looking at how categories change over time. And if you think back, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, um, caged eggs and free range, we just didn't have the distinction that we do now. And we didn't have that sort of balance in the market between how much is now sold free range and versus caged. So categories change and new criteria come in and people need signals to be able to make informed choices. However... Uh, all the work I've done in things like carbon labelling, 
uh, people don't use those labels when they're in store because what we know is people buy habitually. They buy the same brand over and over from a small choice set. Everyone has their own kind of four or five that they choose from. Um, but what we are seeing is some of the really big companies uh, realising that they are the pioneers in this space and can set a strong signal for the rest of the market. So they're making commitments in this kind of space to remove remove things from their manufacturing processes or to recycle better. And this is just kind of a, a more recent issue that's come up and I think we'll see the same trend move through that we see a few of the big brands like Cokes and Unilevers and Procter's and Gambles doing stuff in this space and then, that, then it will normalise it for the entire market. They will change the, the criteria by which the market operates under. I just wanted to add something to that. So research has actually shown that um, in terms of banning microplastics um, on shelves in products, if it's a voluntary ban, it hasn't worked as effectively. But if it is a statewide ban that's sanctioned, um, they have found that for their before and after studies, there is a drop in microplastics in environments. So that kind of push for a statewide sanctioned ban, uh, ban is kind of the push that's needed to get to a point where we can make that change. If I could just add to that, because we had the plastic bag ban in this state and we had first mover advantage, that's quite a political issue and there was a lot of nervousness about that. And if you remember, we had a voluntary period before the ban came into effect, like six months where we... But because shopping is habitual and low involvement, about you know, four or five times out of 10, we left the bags in the car or we just forgot them. So during that voluntary period, we saw a drop, but not a big one. Once the ban came into effect and people were given feedback loops, you know, actually showing, you've forgotten your bag, so you'll need to pay five, 10 cents this time to, to get a bag. Um, we saw a huge change in behavior and people were overwhelmingly supportive because it made sense. And yes, it inconvenienced us a little bit at the start, but pretty soon it was a new habit. And, you know, I, I carry bags with me all the time. We all do now, because that's, that's our new normal. So I think that's what we're seeing. But you're right, we needed that legislative push to and shift that really entrenched, low-level habitual behaviour. But it made sense, so people were happy to do it. We'll come back to policy and legislation yeah. in just a moment when we're talking about potential solutions to this global problem. But microplastics are not a new problem. A bit like smoking, we have known for quite some time the adverse effect that they have on our environment and on our animals and on us as human beings. So why has it taken so long for this to become an important issue? Vaughan. <laughs> why has it taken so long? Look, um, inertia within, within the plastics industry itself, inertia with brand owners, inertia with, you know, the, don't ever forget or lack, un, lack of understanding that they're in this to make money. And the moment you start impinging on profit margins or they, they think it's going to impinge, and by the way, we have our science which shows different to what someone else says, you know, this is a really hard and difficult uh, discussion to have. And it's, and it's very difficult to come from an evidence-based approach when they have all of the technicians and the, and the engineering and whatever on their side. So it takes time to build these arguments, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue it and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be asking for action quickly. 
Vivian, I imagine that this is an area where scientists have really had to prove the adverse effects. Yeah, so with populated areas, we always assumed in that there would be plastics, that there would, as a result, there would be microplastics. Until there's that proof of concept to say, yes, we have proven that there are microplastics in the environment, it's very hard to get people on board as it's often a, an out of, sign, uh, out of sight, out of mind thing because you can't see these plastics. They're just so small. And unless you're looking through a microscope, going through litres of water, litres of sediment, it's not a visual problem that people can see. Um, and as a result, it's kind of just been kind of put to the side a little. And from a consumerist perspective, coming back to what you said earlier, Anne, there's that disconnect between what we buy off the shelf and this global problem. It's like, well, what can I do about it in the supermarket? Yeah, and it's a bit overwhelming on an individual level basis. You know, this is a huge global problem and I'm just one person. And we don't have any feedback loops at the moment to, to know... That, and, we, and it's hard to get the information to know if we're making the right choices. And even when we do, we don't, there's no, no hand patting us on the back or no you know, immediate visible change in our environment. So it makes it a very challenging space for us um, you know, to try and give people that positive feedback and to put the incentives in the market to help people to change and to help them make the right decision. Because even when you want to, if you don't know what you're doing... You, you can't do the right thing. That's exactly right. And mm. I think many of us are in that situation can I, now. Can I well, just add to certainly. that? Because it, it's, there's also a huge amount of innovation going on in this space to create new plastics which have new properties which we've never had before. And, you know, laminated plastics and things with foil liners we're all familiar with. We've seen it in everything from dog food to cat food to, you know, juice pouches for kids that technology is moving ahead at a very fast pace and it's hard for everyone to keep up with it. Well, that brings us to the $64,000 question, doesn't it? We've got this global problem. What can we do about it? Where do we start? My first point of call would have to be education because I've learnt so much just listening to what you've had to say in the last half an hour. Can I have your views on what needs to be done? Um, don't know where you want to start, Vaughan. I guess you work in the policy area, so perhaps we'll start with you. There's a, there's a lot happening probably globally. Um, I have to look outside of Australia to see the policy directions that are going on in Europe. There's an EU, direct, EU directive around um, circular economy, which means that plastics will need to be forming part of that so keeping materials moving within the economy, not letting them escape out into the environment. The UN is doing a lot of work in this. Um, uh, UNEP is doing a lot of work. So, but the, the problem fundamentally though is how do we build the, the, the support base to be able to take this forward in a, in a, in a non-threatening way or a threatening way to get the change? I think it's starting, I'm seeing glimmers of hope now that I wasn't really too sure about, say, th even three or four months ago. Things are starting to change, but we have to keep pushing in that direction in a, in a really um, robust way. Look, even the Queen in Buckingham Palace has decided to 
ban plastic. So she's on board <laughs> as, as a model. Uh, so obviously there's, you said earlier, Vivian, uh, policy and legislation does have an impact. So what are we doing here in Australia at that level, Vaughan? I keep looking to the national government. I mean, we banned plastic bags in 2009. And they're still in the other states trying to catch up with that. We had container deposits here since uh, its 40th anniversary last year of container deposits. So CDL, or container deposit legislation, has a huge impact on beverage litter. And beverage litter is what's causing a lot of the problem in the marine environment because they PET floats and it takes off down every river, every, you know, every dump site you, you can think of. So I think we have some good history here and I think we can build from that. Um, but it is going to take a really significant effort. Um, just from a marketing perspective, brands that are really big are big for two reasons. They've got good mental availability, so when people are in a purchase situation, that is the brand or option that pops into their mind, but they're also physically available. You need both of those things to be a big idea or a big brand to be adopted widely. So if we take those principles into this space, we've got almost zero mental availability at the moment, and we've got very limited physical availability in terms of choices that we can make. So all of us here, though, have a great role we can play in that you are, as I said before, you are above the average in what you know and your willingness to make that change. So you have a, you have a big role and ability to disseminate that knowledge through your networks, your own individual networks, and through that, you know, everyone's knowledge just increases a little bit and we just nudge everyone's likelihood that when they can move away from some of these choices... That they, that they will. So we all can play a role in policy and, you know, manufacturers, but um, I think we, we forget consumers are sovereign. We can vote with our feet. We vote with our wallets and, you know, and manufacturers and retailers respond to that. So get voting, basically. Yeah, get, yeah and, and don't ever think you can't make a difference because you can, even though you're just one individual and this is a very big issue and it's quite disconnected from our everyday life and we don't get any feedback on our behaviour, it doesn't mean you're not making a difference and it doesn't mean you're not powerful and that you can't help and influence others along that path rather than just being in that state of knowledge yourself and being a bit sad about it and being treated like, you know, you're odd. You're not. It's just this is a new idea. This needs to be mainstreamed. We need to normalise it. So people need to start to use this as an evaluative criteria when they're consuming and making shopping decisions. Um, and it's just going to take a little bit of time to diffuse through the population. But always think physical and mental availability, and that's what can make it a big mainstream idea and behaviour to avoid this stuff. Vivian, you see the damage that plastic is doing every day in your work. What do you say about what needs to be done? And do we actually need to consider an outright ban on some plastics globally? Um, yes, I would say an outright ban is definitely the move in the right direction. Um, what we can do in our daily lives is shop smart. So when I started my research in, what year was it? 2012, um, I went through all of my cupboards to find the ingredient list of every single item I had and was just blown away by the amount of plastic I had. 
Um, my mission was to go to my local shop to find products that didn't have plastic. I was able to find two toothpastes that didn't have microplastics, wasn't able to find a single shampoo, um, wasn't able to find a single conditioner. Um, so it made it very hard to be, I guess, environmentally aware and choose the right product. Um, it's changed a lot in the last few years um, and that's definitely um, a product of community pressure and community initiatives um, with local governments and other community groups. Um, but a lot more pressure does need to be kind of put on companies to be held accountable for the items that they do put in their ingredient lists. Quite often we're, I'm writing to companies to ask them to change their approach. And recently my minister wrote to a bunch of beer companies because the, you know, the six ring beer can holder, plastic, I see pictures, you know, with turtles trapped in it and sea lions with it around their neck and so on. Just a simple letter to the beer companies and they all virtually agreed, no, we're not doing that anymore. I think from people in this audience and everybody else out there who's got an interest in this, write to the manufacturers, put, put your view forward because otherwise they think everything's just fine. You know, it doesn't take much of an effort to send an email off to um, some of the some of the big manufacturers around the place. Globally, Vaughan, how likely is it that we would see a ban on any particular sort of plastic? I actually think microplastics are very close. Um, it probably will follow, I suspect, um, other countries' um, leads, but it's. I think it's in. It, it will happen. I, it's probably two years away, but who knows. Okay, so we've looked at education, that's the obvious thing of, of all of us, so that we know what we're buying and then we can make decisions about what we buy. We've looked at legislation and policy makers needing to change that. We've looked at brands needing us to tell them what we want or what we don't want so that they'll change what they do. What about some other things that might help resolve the plastic issue? How about cleaning up the environment, for example? Yeah, I... I like the, you know, the things that KESAB does here in this state and also Clean Up Australia. Two NGOs that, you know, grassroots go around picking up stuff. Um, I know everyone thinks, oh, well, it's not much that I picked up, but believe me, whenever I walk along the beach, I'm finding lolly wrappers or uh, chocolate wrappers or some polystyrene, bits of polystyrene, something. Pick it up, take it off, take it out of the environment. Um, those NGOs, I think, have a significant role to play, not just here but internationally. Um, the opportunity in Indonesia, in China, in, in various other places throughout Asia, including India, to get a grassroots um, support group happening to, to stop it in those countries because that's, they're the videos that you see on YouTube of some poor diver trying to find his way through a sea of plastic pieces off the coast of Bali. I've been there, I've seen it. And, and the, the waste system isn't up to scratch to be able to deal with, the, with what's been thrown away. This, these are big policy opportunities to change things in our region as well as in this country. And Vivian, by us picking up those lolly wrappers or those bits of plastic, we are potentially saving the life of a marine animal. Definitely. Yeah, no, there's great initiatives back in New South Wales where um, if you go jogging on a beach, uh, I think for every minute you jog, you pick up five pieces of plastic rubbish 
So if you think about your average jog, it lasts 10, 15, maybe half an hour. That's a lot of plastic to be picking up. There's a really great app. It's called Literati. Look Look it up. When you pick up a piece of litter, you photograph it, it GPSs it, it loads it into a, an international database. You can see what you've done. You can see what other people are doing. This is important stuff. And it gamifies the... the you can talk about gamification. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it gives you a feedback loop, doesn't it? And Which is important. But also it gets you away from that preachy doom and gloom space where you get disempowered by that message. Like, it's huge, it's going to be here for generations and you as an individual aren't doing much. Well, things like literati um, help you feel part of a wider community. They know um, that even though it's just a small impact, it's something part of something bigger and it's it's not um, it's not done in that normal tone which which can be really off-putting for people and really kind of preaching to the converted but in a negative way makes it feel kind of positive and that's that whole gamification idea that you know we can we can make it something that's kind of fun for something that's traditionally been a bit of a drudge but I'd also say look there's still a role for just reducing your consumption, being thoughtful about what you do, um, reusing stuff and don't be ashamed to, and recycle stuff. You know, do it properly. Just don't be lazy. But and We know that also yeah. a lot of the plastic waste is from packaging. Absolutely. So that's something that brands themselves need to think about. What can we as consumers do to make the brands realise we don't want to buy things that we have to hack away at with scissors just to get to one small item. I agree, and I think the awareness of that is is massively increased recently. It's been a real consumer backlash against excess packaging for things like bananas. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing this changing and we are seeing manufacturers being responsible. And some in the last, you know, five, ten years, we've seen almost all the big companies put a lot more focus on not just their end, but also their supply chains and how, how items move through it, being more visible to us as consumers so it's easier for us to get information. And they all have sustainability officers now who, whose job it is to make sure the company is doing the right thing in this space. So, you know, I, I feel quite positive because I see a lot of the background that's changing, even if we don't see it all on the front line yet. There is a big groundswell away from some of this um, bad practice that hasn't been done out of malice or, you know, it's just been done because there hasn't been awareness and, you know, it's been cheap and easy to do. And so we just need to change the market and incentivise it so that they have to pay full costs of this kind of bad behaviour. Well, given that we are addicted to plastic, is there perhaps another path too in designing plastics that are better environmentally assimilated? Yeah, there's already a lot of work going on. Everyone's seen biodegradable plastic bags. They were around a few years ago. They are not what we should be using. Um, they just break down into smaller and smaller pieces and they use heavy metals in the, in, the, in the structure to enable that to happen. Compostable bags that are genuinely made from cornstarch are fine. They will break down in compost heaps. They will break down in your home compost if you do it properly. But the, um, there is a lot of work going on to try and make these products more, be able to be assimilated more into the environment. And to, there's a lot of research going on around bugs in, and I've seen some recent articles where, you know, bacteria from some caterpillar can eat a plastic. Well, I don't know how much 
plastic a caterpillar can eat, but it's probably nowhere near enough um, unless we get this done on some form of huge industrial scale. So I think the, the, the signs are good, but we have to ramp it up. We have to get to industrial scale to be able to deal with this problem. And I imagine another potential solution is better recycling and better collection of the waste that's now at the moment, Vivian, drifting out to sea. Yeah, very much so. And it's very current dependent. Um, it can be localised, it can be global. So it could ultimately end up anywhere. Yeah, the, the, the waste system here isn't too bad, right? Even in Adelaide, you see the three bin system. That's probably good practice. But the question going forward is, because none of you can identify a plastic, you know, can you tell me that that's polypropylene and this is polyethylene terephthalate and this is polyvinyl chloride? No. So we need to be able to identify plastics in an industrial scale um, recycling facility so it can be automatically detected as it goes along a conveyor belt and pulled off. Those systems are actually now available and they're being built in Europe, so it won't be long before they're here. But in the meantime, you know, we need to be participating in our recycling, as Deb said, you know, in, and doing a proper job as best we possibly can. And I was just going to say, that's what I love. If you think back, like even five years ago, what could go in your recycling bin was so different to what can be included now. And we now have green organics waste stream and we're diverting food scraps into, into the green bin. So our landfill bins have really changed in the last, you know, five years. And I think that's so positive. But, but it, it's a big message is we have to um, stay open and receptive to learning because science keeps making the options different. So us as consumers need to keep learning. Where you kind of think, oh, I know what goes in each of the bins, and you switch off and you... You miss opportunities to pull stuff out of your landfill bin and, you know, you also might be a bit outdated and be contaminating um, good recycling streams if you're not doing the right thing. So it's, I always say, look, it's not sexy, but it's really important. Just spend a bit of time checking that you're up to date with what can go in each of the... Of the um, disposal option bins. Well, I'm glad you're sounding hopeful and optimistic there, Anne, because I have to ask you the big question, which is, is plastic pollution as great a threat to humanity as climate change? Vivian. Yes, it is. Um, though the scales may be different, um, it, the issue in itself and just the sheer amount of plastic we are producing um, puts it in the kind of same ballpark for me as climate change. Vaughan. I, I, I agree, and I think that it's... Um, the interesting thing about, you can, you know, two-edged sword here, whether, whether the plastic thing is actually more immediate than climate change. Climate, we're looking to stop it from going two degrees by, what is it, 2050? Plastic stuff is happening now. And a lot of people would also argue that climate change is happening now, and I happen to agree with that as well. So whatever we can do now makes it easier later. Um, and the two, the two things are connected. Both are influencing our oceans, and, and both are influencing the biota on this planet, including us. And it's, we need to wake up. 
Uh, and for me, I'd say they're in the same boat in that they're both big issues. It's easy to feel disempowered about both of them and that we can't make a difference because there's a huge disconnect from what we do every day and seeing a link to making a change. And there's no feedback loop either for the behaviours. So I see them as really similar issues. And so for me, a lot of the solutions are the same. But with plastics, I think we have a very, very strong role as consumers in how we can reduce the escalation of the problem. So that old adage of think local, act global really does matter when it comes to plastics. Well, look, I'm aware that we have to finish at six o'clock, so we do have some time for questions. Um, I think Deb's going to grab a mic. So if you would... Thanks, Anne. If you've got a question, please raise your hand. And if you could just speak directly into the mic. Hello. You've talked about personal response to plastic. What about industrial use, like all these chairs and tents and things, and what's the difference between microplastics and other plastics? Thank you. So I'll, I'll have a go at that one. Um, the industrial-scale production of things like your chairs, there is a recycling route for that. It, because it is on an industrial scale and it's all one polymer and it's easily collected and it's all in one place, usually. Um, so you can, there's a, an opportunity of scale, if you like. Microplastics are the things that are usually um, from clothing that comes off in the washing machine. So they're tiny, they're, micros they're microscopic. You actually have to use a microscope to find them. Um, and also the, the microplastics that are in, in the products that are used in the, you know, face and hair type industries. Um, and they're not stopped by any filters at the sewage treatment works. They just go straight through the system. And so they always end up in the marine environment. But you can't find them until you actually go and, you know, trawl for this stuff. To add to that, um, when collecting sediment, um, 100 mils can have upwards of 100 pieces of microplastics. It takes approximately four hours to sort through that properly to make sure you've collected every single bit of plastic. So if you try to upscale that and collect enough sediment, you're going to be looking at hundreds of litres of sediment and hundreds of people trying to process it in hundreds and maybe thousands of hours. Thanks for the question. Now, where is that microphone? Okay, that's India, I think, can come around. We've got lots of people that want to ask questions, so if you can keep it brief, that would be great. Oh, hi. My concern is the link between the actual production of the plastic through the fossil fuel industry and petrols and perhaps attacking those things from the source. And when you talk about a loop that makes people aware of things, for many years now we've had the star system on... Uh, white goods as to their energy use, I can't see why. It doesn't cost the government, a th well, very little to institute that type of regulation, not just on plastic products, but on things like polyester fabrics, etc. And I think that was a really easy way for the government to just take a move. It's, you know, it seems to me that it's such a, a high-speed financially based decision that the businesses will respond to. 
Uh, of course, I'd basically like to see it taxed at the fossil fuel level, <laughs> that everybody's responsible for the recycling and the return of every product that they put out on the market and build that in through a tax system and a legislative system. Can't see the government going for anything that they have to monitor. But, you know, I, I, I feel we should be angling for that type of government responsibility in taking care of our health, because there's a huge... You haven't touched on that, but the health impacts of plastic are huge as well. And when you're talking about packaging, I think it's t very concerning for an ageing population, having watched my mother unable to access practically mm. everything she bought. I think these sorts of issues cut across a number of um, portfolios in government. And I would, I think a political response at that level is will likely be effective because there's already people very concerned about it. Vaughan? My question is, will oh. that, what do you reckon? Is it possible? Every, anything's possible. Um, and I think you, you make a, a really valid point. That, and I agree entirely. So what, what more can I say? Um, thank you for the question. India, yes? Okay. Um, I just wanted to point, say something that is happening. Um, Holdfast Bay, which is where Glenelg is, if you're not local, in South Australia, we're actually trialling with a couple of supermarkets using compostable bags instead of those little fine plastic fruit and veg bags that you get. So then you can put your food waste in, the, in those bags and put them in your organics bin. And that is a great way, I think, of reducing that sort of plastic. And then we have, in South Australia, we haven't totally got rid of plastic. We've got rid of single-use plastic bags in the supermarkets, but we've still got woven plastic and the bigger, thicker plastic bags, and they still find their way into the wrong places. So can we go for jute or bamboo or something different? Any ideas? Uh, no, I just want to say that is, it's a really good uh, example that you've given because it's making the alternative very easy for people. You know, you just keep doing the same behaviour, but suddenly the consequences of your behaviour are quite different. So I think that's a really fabulous initiative. I'd also say, yes, look, we have still got, um, we have still got ba some bags, you know, that you get. And, uh, but one unintended consequence of us taking our own bags to supermarkets are uh, that we also now take them to lots of other shopping situations as well. So this was a positive but unintended consequence of the ban of single-use plastic bags in supermarkets is we now take them to the pharmacy. You have to take them to Bunnings, but we take them almost everywhere we go. So people are taking fewer bags than they used to. But yeah, we've, we could still do better, for sure. And people don't realise they can wash their green bags, all sorts of things like that. But it's a start, you know, and, and that's a great example. And we are, we are partnering with IGA in that trial, by the way, down at Holthouse Bay. So, you know, we're helping to fund that. Okay, next question. Given there's now a huge array of cornstarch and other types of compostable packaging, apart from cost based on scale, what are the other problems with that being used more commonly, for example, with food packaging? Um, and, you know, single-use items. So apart from cost, and also are there problems with actually diverting it into compost, given a lot of people don't compost, um, and if it ends up in recycling streams, is that a problem? Or if it is in commercial composting, such as the City of Adelaide, you know, do they see it and think it's plastic and therefore think that it's contaminating the composting system? Yeah, the problem, the problem with 
compostable bags is that they do find they can find their way into the recycling stream and they become a contaminant for the other plastics that we are trying to recycle. They have to go into the into the organic stream to be composted properly. Um, and there are ways and means of doing that. We can colour code, we can make sure that, you know, we can run campaigns and that sort of stuff. When it gets into the food and beverage area, though, it doesn't have the same properties as the other plastics. So some plastics, for example, will stop oxygen migrating across the barrier. PET does that, stops CO2 leaking out of the bottle. Um, organic materials may not have those same properties. So, you know, it, it, it's horses for courses, and that's why we have so many, hundreds and hundreds of different polymers now available in the marketplace for all these different products and applications. Yes, question? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I've got two questions, really. One is about um, the toxicity of plastic and how that affects us in, in our everyday environment. Like, if I choose to live in a basically a plastic-free environment, um, I'm still affected by the off-gassing of all the plastics around us. You know, and we, we've had a big campaign on bisphenol A, but there's bisphenol B and C and, you know, X and Z and all... That there's so many different chemicals coming at us because of that. Um, you know, all our water mains and, you know, it's standard practice now to put plastic piping, water pipes throughout houses, um, those sort of things. And, and uh, you know, I sort of question in that, where's my human right to clean air and clean water uh, and a clean environment? And the second question or the second concern I have is around... Um, you know, our experiences with carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases show us that we're not going to um, change things at an individual level. So why are we still looking at trying to change consumer behaviour and why, why can't we slate this, this problem back to where it belongs at the source, at the people who manufacture and use these things and to bring that onto the marketplace with us? Like the true cost of cleaning up all those nanoparticles in that slurry, in that in that sludge, is phenomenal, and nobody's ever going to to do that. But if it was their responsibility to clean it up, if it gets there, um, they wouldn't manufacture it in the first place. So, um, you know, where's our governmental and political response? Um, you know, and 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 how can we bring that bring the responsibility back to where where it uh, really does belong? Excellent points made. Who wants to take that one on? Well, that's one perhaps for you as well, Anne, because if we actually had to send all the packaging back to the people that create it, they might think differently. Look, I fundamentally, in, you know, in terms of the health impacts, I don't think we fully appreciate or understand the, how, how meaningful and deep that goes. I, can we link it to cancer incidents? Can we, you know, unlike smoking... How many years did it take for smoking to be found out to be the problem that it was? But the, the, op the opportunity for through, I think what you describe as the extended producer responsibility that says, and at the moment it's kind of limited to recycling, but if you also make those companies accountable for a whole range of things, yes, of course, they'll have to change their practices. But then, then you know what happened with VW. In, in United States. They were told to meet the diesel emission standard and they fabricated the results. It took them years to find out that they'd actually done that. So 
you know, that, that there is a lot of um, serious scientific research work that we have to get done fast and to be able to tackle this on a global scale. But I agree, that's fundamentally where it has to end up. Yeah, I'd just reiterate, I agree, manufacturers definitely have a very strong role, policy has a strong role, but we, you know, consumers are sovereign, they're responding to our, our desires, so, um, you know, I think if we express what we want, that, that also creates a pull effect and makes manufacturers want to be more responsive. So I think it's, it's everything together is going to make this change. And I agree, though, with what you're saying. There's areas where we could be doing a lot more, but I don't think we should forget our rights and, and our duty as consumers to express what it is that we want so that we can alter the way the markets are operating. Thank you very much. Thanks for your questions. I'm sorry we don't have time for any more, but it has been a very fascinating, revealing and unfortunately highly alarming discussion this afternoon. Can you please join me in thanking our panellists, Vivian Sim, Masters by Research in Marine Ecology at the University of, North, of New South Wales, Associate Professor Anne Sharp, Senior Research Scientist at the Ehrenberg Bass Institute for Marketing Science and Vaughan Levitsky, Chief Executive of Green Industries SA. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for making time and a very important uh, day here in the last day of WOMAD to come and talk about this very important issue. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you.